0: Hello, brothers and sisters. I'd like to ask that you open your Bibles to 1 Peter. Doing something a little bit different, we're leaving Mark's Gospel. It's not completely uh, unconnected, this uh, letter and Mark's Gospel. It may be that Mark and Peter uh, are together and in Rome when uh, both of these uh, books of the Bible were written. A special greetings to our live stream uh, brothers and sisters, thank you uh, also uh, for uh, joining with us, and uh, a special uh, thanks to all of our visitors uh, for being here. So we're taking a break from Mark's gospel. We're looking at First Peter, chapter five verses uh, six through 11. And just to uh, quickly get us up to speed, uh, don't forget that First and Second Peter are written to not one single congregation, but actually a collection of congregations. Now, each of these uh, congregations are uh, relatively uh, young, uh, maybe uh, 10, 15 years old. These, uh, many of them are congregations that were planted by Paul on his first missionary journey. And so that's who Peter is writing. But a key word in 1 Peter in particular is the word exile, aliens, sojourners, That's how Peter describes the life of being a Christian in these congregations, but it's fitting for us, isn't it? That we are, as Christians, living in exile. We're residents here, but we don't actually belong here. And that theme reverberates through 1 Peter. Little theologians, if I could address you for a moment, I want you to draw for me something strange. Perhaps you always think this is strange, but I want you to draw for me a picture of a meerkat. That's really strange, isn't it, even for me? Little theologians, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I want you to draw a meerkat because uh, there was a time when my kids were growing up that uh, meerkats were all over the television. Maybe they aren't so much now, which makes this a weird request. But in this passage... Uh, Paul seems to be addressing a body of people who seem to be rather uh, skittish. They're suffering for a number of reasons, and they're skittish. But I want you to draw for me a picture of one single meerkat. Meerkats are always with other meerkats. But draw just one. Because Peter is addressing us to remind us, I think, that, yes, I see you. I see that you're skittish. And yes, I see you. You think that you're all alone. But you actually shouldn't be skittish. And you're certainly not alone. Maybe you can think about some of that while you're drawing your meerkat for me. Welcome, little theologians. Before we read our passage from 1 Peter 5, would you join me in prayer? Our Father, thank you for making yourself known. You reveal yourself. It's us who need to be tempered, who need to be given understanding, because our hearts are dull. And so, Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, that you would give a lightness and brightness to our hearts, that these hearts would be receptive to what you have for us this morning. We thank you for doing this by your great power. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, our our passage, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll begin at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, as I said, Peter's writing from Rome, and he's writing perhaps 15 years after Paul planted several churches. Now, this is in what is modern-day Turkey. Turkey. And the letter is clearly addressed to people who are suffering; they are enduring trials of various kinds. Not all the trials are uh, actually uh, unfolded before us in First Peter, but they are clearly suffering for the name of Jesus. And I want us to think about this year of 2020. I certainly am. I mean, in January of this year, did any of us expect March of this year? Or April, or what came to follow. In January, were we expecting that? It's been one of those years. And so I'm asking myself the question is there anything that we can be thankful for in the year 2020? We're rushing to euphemize this uh, year such that 2020 is the uh, year to beat all years, but I don't think it is. It's just a year. There have been trials associated with this year, to be sure, but it's still just a year. And as we look at the setting in which uh, these believers uh, that Peter is writing, look at their setting, I think that we can see a lot of uh, 2020-ishness in that setting. And Peter, he has something to say to individuals in that setting. I want to say two things about the world of the recipients of this letter. I think they should sound familiar to all of us. The first thing I want to say with regards to the setting of the recipients of Peter's letter is this. The world in which they're living in is a very Epicurean world. What do I mean by that? Epicurus was a philosopher who wrote in that era between the Old and the New Testament. But he became popularized just before the birth of Jesus. There was this resurgence of Epicurean philosophy, so to speak. But in all honesty, it's a philosophy that sells rather well. The chief uh, belief of Epicurean philosophy is that uh, all of life is centered around receiving, gaining, having pleasure. That all of life is meant to be uh, a life in which there is an absence of trouble, in which there is freedom from pain, freedom from fear. It's really a doctrine of happiness as the uh, end-all goal for all of life. And so the church, the churches that Peter is is writing, uh, the the church is located in a world that is based upon building a comfortable, luxuriant life. And in many ways, this was actually a a reasonable thing during this time. It's reasonable to pursue luxury. Uh, This is the ascendancy of the Roman Empire. There's lots of luxury to be had, and so making a life of happiness was actually reasonable. To do anything in the name, for instance, of a dead person like Jesus of Nazareth, well, that was unreasonable and, in fact, dangerous. And to say the very least, if you follow that person who once lived but is now dead, you miss opportunities for happiness. That's the first thing with regards to the setting of the recipients. Does that sound familiar to you at all? The second thing is this that these Christians were increasingly in their cities, marginalized as Christians. The majority culture is beginning to feel very comfortable rejecting the Christian culture. Uh, For instance, uh, within Christianity, there's no more shelter of Judaism. It was clear to everyone that Christianity is something other than Judaism. They can respect Jews, but not these strange Christians. And not only that, during this time, there's this great rise of the worship of the emperors such that if you refuse to worship an emperor, well, it doesn't matter what your religion is, you're rejected as a person. And you are especially vulnerable to the marginalization of the world if you had a particularly low status like a slave. If you're someone like that, you're very vulnerable to marginalization. You're also vulnerable if you refuse to, shall I say, party like everyone else. If you refuse to make uh, comfort and happiness and luxury your goal in life, well, you are vulnerable. So, Peter addresses them, knowing this about their life, uh, saying to them that there's a great temptation to drop gentleness and respect. Isn't that interesting? You're being rejected by the world... But you're also being tempted to drop gentleness, to drop respect. And in fact, you're being tempted to fight against this rejection, fighting back with insults, uh, fighting back with what Peter calls meddling, which may be working the system in Christian favor. And Peter even says that there's a temptation to murder. You think the rejection can be that intense? Seems to have been. The problem is this, the name of Jesus. That's the problem, Peter says in chapter 4. All of the suffering, all the marginalization, all the rejection from the world is on account of the word of Jesus. In fact, just by way of of an illustration of this, uh, during this same time period, maybe about 10, 15 years after the writing of Peter, we actually have a copy of a letter that is written to Emperor Trajan, and it's written from the area in which Peter is writing. It's written from Bithynia, the churches in Bithynia that Peter is addressing in this letter. And this uh, letter, which historians recognize, is a letter that's written to Emperor Trajan, and the great question of the letter is, uh, dear Emperor, is it okay to persecute a people simply because of the name of Jesus? No other reason. They seem good-hearted. But is it, is it reasonable to persecute them simply because they reference the name of Jesus? Now, we don't have the answer of Emperor Trajan, but just think about the kind of setting in which these Christians are living in. There's suffering in the church that's due to some kind of rejection or marginalization in the world for the name of Jesus. See, both of these things are happening as Peter is writing this letter to this body of congregations, but both of these things are happening to us. What have we recognized during this year of 2020 I hope that we have recognized that we have a rather rampant pursuit for happiness and luxury and comfort. And that actually has been stymied by the events of 2020. Do you feel that even in a small degree? And not only that, this year of 2020 has shown us that there is this kind of hostility to the church in which the church has stood out in ways that we didn't expect. There's this pull and push of the Christian life that was true for Peter's recipients is true for us. The allurement of a doctrine of happiness, and then also this push against us by a marginalization or feeling uh, a kind of rejection of Christianity. Well, 2020 has been both of these. We've been forced to say goodbye to some luxury and happiness and we have been made to feel the world's disregard for us as Christians. None of this, however, is new. And so the question I have is, is there anything in 2020 to be thankful for? And actually, I think there's five things in this passage to be thankful for, but I'm going to ask that you uh, wait to the end. Those of you who tend to snooze during a sermon Um, uh, maybe I should snap my fingers to awake you at the end. I do think there's five things to be thankful for. But what this passage is telling us is that even though we're surrounded by temptation for the world, the things of the world tempt us, and surrounded by a rejection from the world, our course of life is one of ordinary faith. As Christians, we're actually actually well-suited for this kind of life were actually well-suited for a year like 2020. There's a couple of things uh, straight away that you should notice in this passage. Peter is a little uh, commandy. He has commands for us. It's almost as if the the application of the passage uh, bubbles up to the surface. I mean, just uh, look in verses 6 and 7, and you'll see that there is a humility that's commanded. Uh, Humble yourselves, he says in verse 6. And I think he's saying that there is a humility that we are to have even in the face of anxiety. Verses 6 and 7. Humility in the face of anxiety. But then jump forward to verse 8, because in verses 8 and 9, there is a a belief or a faith that uh, we are to have even in the face of devouring. That's a strange word, but Peter uses it. There's a belief that a Christian has even in the face of devouring. Humility in the face of anxiety, belief in the face of devouring. Just going back to verse 6, you know, none of us really do struggle to define uh, humility, do we? Peter says, "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God." But we know what humility is, don't we? Humility is selflessness. A humility is a thoughtfulness about others. A humility is an absence of a boasting. Really, the the classic text for understanding humility is in Paul's letters of the Philippians, Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's humility. And you know, humility is worth getting right because Peter says in uh, verse 5 of of, uh, the, the verse just before our passage, he says that God gives grace to the humble. James says this in James chapter 4. So humility, it's worth understanding, and it's worth getting it right because God gives grace to the humble. Now, that's all well and good, but do we ever think of humility the way that Peter does in verse 7? Peter says that humility, or humbling yourself, is casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Is that normally how you define what it means to be humble? When we think of the opposite of being humble, we think of selfishness and pride. Ooh, we don't like those people. But to Peter, the opposite is actually holding very tightly to our worries and our anxieties. That's the opposite of humility. The opposite of humility is actually refusing to cast your worries upon God. So when someone is anxious, we actually, I actually, I don't want to call them prideful. That's not what I think of when someone is anxious. But Peter, he seems to be describing anxiety as a kind of pride that mitigates against humility. Think about that. Hmm. Well, there's a couple of things that we need to think about The first is this, if Peter is right, which he is, but if if Peter is right in saying that that anxiety is a form of pride, that anxiety is a form of resisting humility, we need to examine our hearts very closely. Because when we think about examining our hearts for pride, I think maybe we go a little bit too quickly and say there's no pride there. I scanned. Did you scan for anxiety as well? The Bible elsewhere says that anxieties are ordinary cares of life that we actually allow to grow too dense. Uh, These uh, anxieties, they actually become, or these ordinary worries, they become compacted and and dense uh, so that these cares of life, they actually weigh down our hearts. Anxieties are ordinary cares that we allow to become too dense. And anxieties are ordinary cares that we allow to choke out what we believe about God. We just read this in the parable of the sower. Anxieties are those thorns, the cares of the world that they actually uh, choke out the Word of God. You know, the English word anxious literally means to squeeze and so anxieties are things that we need to look for in our own hearts. We, we have to examine our heart in a, in, a, in a fresh way in terms of discerning that which is evidence of pride. Holding on to our anxieties is evidence of pride. Ordinary cares of life that become so dense that they weigh us down. Ordinary cares of life that actually choke out what we believe about God examine your heart for those things but not only that you actually have to commit to casting them away. If Peter believes that casting our anxieties, uh, throwing our anxieties is actually uh, possible. He doesn't say that it's easy, but he says that it's possible. The verb choice that he uses for casting is the kind of verb that applies to us all the time. The ordinary part of the Christian life is continually examining our heart for these anxieties and then uh, casting them away to God. It's not something you uh, do uh, one season of life. It's your ordinary life. And so we need to commit to casting those anxieties. We're examining our hearts to find them and we're committing to casting them away before any of us think that that is just so simple, know that there's a certain way that that needs to be done. Peter says that our anxieties are cast on him. You see that in verse 7. We cast our anxieties on God. Well, you think, well, where else would our anxieties go? That's the whole point of an anxiety. I don't know what to do with it, and so there's nothing to do with it but cast it on God. Well, I don't think that's true. And you don't think that's true either. We know how to deal with our worries. We go to the Bahamas. We earn more money. We we, uh, make uh, sinful uses of things that really are meant to be good. We become lost in our hobbies. We become lost in drinking. We become lost in the boring drone of Netflix. We actually do know how to deal with our worries. That's how we deal with them. We cast them upon ourselves over and over and over again. But Peter is saying, stop doing that and cast them on God. You aren't the one who is going to be able to care for those anxieties. And then he says this. How sweet these words are. They're also in verse 7. Because God cares for you. I care for me, and you care for you, but that's not enough. God cares for you, and you actually cast your anxieties by aiming them at him, and you're motivated by his good character to love and care for you. And again, this sounds uh, very easy, but this is what Peter says. We are to be a people who recognize anxiety for what it is. It is a kind of pride It is a kind of holding things to ourselves. It is a kind of self-reliance. Jesus, do you remember when he uh, holds up children as an example, and he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And there we think of uh, children having humility, but how do they have humility? What does it look like for a child to have humility? Well, that child is completely uh, and utterly dependent upon their mother and their father. And we forget that as Christians. That's what humility is. Humility is throwing your anxieties to God because you know that he cares for you. And so you examine your heart to find those ordinary things that have become anxieties. And you commit to casting those things to God because he cares for you. But you remember that he cares for you. And that's your motivation, not mere desperation but knowing that you are a child of God cared for very well by him. Surrounded by temptation for the world and rejection from the world. You see, the course of life is actually pretty, pretty ordinary as a Christian. And that's where Peter goes next in verses 8 and 9. Belief in the face of devouring. You know, we, we think about these uh, three commands that come very quickly in 8 and 9, but I think they all tie together. The first two you see in verse 8. We're to be sober minded and we're to be watchful. And both of these verbs actually are negatives that Peter turns positive. To be sober minded is to be free from intoxication, it's to be clear headed, it's to be self aware. And the same thing is true with watchfulness. To be watchful is to not be asleep, it's to be awake, aware of what's happening around you. Peter says, Don't be drunk. And he says, don't be asleep. And one scholar, I think, is very right in noticing that, you know, one of these commands is something internal. To be clear-headed and self-aware is internal. And then one of them is to be uh, external. If you're sleeping, you're missing what's going on around you, so don't sleep. You can pay attention. But then jump down and you see the third command. And really, I think this third command of resisting your adversary I think it's based upon the first two commands, the sober-mindedness and the watchfulness. The third command is resisting your adversary, literally setting yourself in opposition to him. You ever stood face to face with wind, pushing against you? The the word that Peter uses for resist is digging in your heels. It's uh, holding yourself against that strong wind. Brace yourself, Peter says. You see right in the passage, the devil, the accuser. I think that's who Peter is referencing, and I know this because the New Testament is actually very comfortable talking about the devil. The devil is real. The devil is an accuser, someone who lies about who we are in Christ. I love that Paul says in Ephesians 6.11 that the devil is one who actually schemes, who plots and plans. Well, Peter is uh, the only New Testament writer who describes the devil like this, one who, in verse 8, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, he's the only one in the New Testament, but actually King David speaks about uh, the accuser in this way in Psalm 22, the psalm that our Lord uh, quotes on the cross. And surely the reference is not merely to the devil, but uh, to his uh, operations, as it were. Uh, the, not just the devil alone, but to his, to his influence. But Ezekiel, he uses this expression of uh, this prowling around, seeking someone to, devo- to devour. But Ezekiel, he uses it to refer to bad prophets, lying prophets, or bad priests. These prophets and priests during Ezekiel's time. Well, they themselves are serving as instruments of the devil. What do you suppose is happening to these believers that Peter is writing? They're tempted by the culture of the world to seek happiness and comfort. And yet, at the same time, they're marginalized, rejected by that same world for being Christians. One commentator says that Peter focuses on the roaring of the devil because the roar is something that induces fear in the people of God. Why is this lion roaring, roaring to scare us, to intimidate believers in the hope that, they, that if they capitulate, if they deny the faith, then this devil will leave them alone. And if they continue to believe, then this devil will devour them. Now, this commentator says that it's intimidation. Well, Peter, he is calling believers to resist the devil which is really to resist being eaten by the very world in which they live. But he tells us how to resist. Before we think that that resisting is something that's so complex, look how clear-headed Peter is. The resisting is actually what you've just read in verse 8. It's being sober-minded. It's being self-aware, knowing who you are as a sinner, but also knowing who you are as a child of God. But it's also knowing that what's happening in the world is happening because of God's ordained will. While he isn't doing what you might do at this time, he is working and he's working like a mustard seed, slowly, sometimes imperceptibly. God's Word tells us both of these things. God's Word tells us who we are as Christians, and we need to remember that. And God tells us that he himself is working in the world even though it might look like he isn't or feel like he isn't. In many ways, the resistance of the adversary who is seeking to devour and who is certainly intimidating, that resistance is remembering who God is and remembering who you are. One of the lies we uh, hear bandied about in the life of the church is that really the resistance is about uh, an extra dose of faith. And we look at verse 9, that phrase, firm in your faith. And I hear Christians encouraging one another that what they really need is more and more faith. That's what it's going to take to resist. And not ordinary faith, but rather extraordinary faith. But that's not what the passage says at all. I can't see it there in any way, shape, or form. Verse 9 isn't about your personal experience of faith. It's about the faith of the church. It's about what the church believes in the objective truth of the gospel. It isn't believe harder. It's believe the right things believe what the church has always believed about who we are as Christian people and about what God is doing in the world. One commentator says, this is not individual faith, but the beliefs of the worldwide church. Another commentator says that resisting the devil means that believers remain firm in their faith to trust God. God. Spurgeon himself says that uh, this resistance is a clear knowledge of the doctrines of the gospel. And John Calvin says it so simply. He says, "There is sufficient strength in faith. You may feel like you need something more than Christianity, as something that goes beyond Protestant orthodoxy, something that's more than just the gospel, but you do not you don't. Resistance to the devil, living a life in which you are aware of who you are as a sinner and a saint, living a life in which you are watchful of what God is doing in the world, this is what ordinary Christian life is about. You don't need something more. Again, it isn't believe harder It's believe the right things about who you are and about the work of God. Surrounded by temptation for the world and surrounded by rejection from the world. Really, the course of the Christian life is ordinary faith. And it brings us to our present need. Peter knows who he's writing to. He knows that they are tempted to make the good life everything about their life to seek happiness and comfort, to seek freedom from trouble as the ultimate goal. And he also knows that the church is struggling against marginalization in the world. And yet he says we're called to live lives of humility. The anxieties of the world are sometimes our own anxieties. We sometimes idolize comfort, and we sometimes make the avoidance of hardship our very goal of life. We're also very afraid of being marginalized by the world, rejected by the world, uh, paying uh, an unjust price in the world because we believe in Jesus. But don't allow these cares to become too dense, and don't allow these cares to choke out what we believe about God. That's what Peter means when he says we are to be humble. But we're also called to live not just lives of humility, but lives of resistance to the evil one. We need to know what Christian belief is and that that belief is sufficient. We need to know and believe who we are as sinners and as children of God. This is our self-awareness. And we need to know and believe that God is at work in the world, that his story of redemption is unstoppable, even if it looks like the world is advancing. We need to know this. How do we know this? We know this in God's word, is there we find who he is and there we find our great need and there we find his provision for us in Jesus Christ. It's so easy to think there's not enough in his word to endure with this landscape of 2020, but there is. You see, Peter believes that a rudimentary reminder of this is all found in the character of God. And here we are, five things to be thankful for this year. The first I see in verse 7. Be thankful that he is a God who cares for us. Hear that affection Knowing what you know about him as the perfect father, know also that his fatherly regard for us is unchanging. He will never neglect us. He will never neglect you. He's a God who cares. The second thing is this, is that he's a God who operates according to a plan. Call it a story, if you will. Look in the passage. He has, in his mind, a proper time to exalt you. Aren't you grateful that he does? And look at verse 10, uh, that he uh, sees that this suffering is suffering just for a little while. He's a God who operates according to a plan. And though you don't know the details of that story, he does. He's a God who operates according to a plan. The third is this. He's a God who makes us us. Isn't that strange? He's a God who actually makes us together together. It's impossible for us to be a Christian and to be isolated in our own little world. Look at this, and uh, Peter is even uh, uh, comparing our life of suffering with the life of sufferers all over the world, people I've never met. But you will, because even though he permits us to suffer, we're called to know that this is actually a part of Christian faith worldwide. There's a brotherhood of sufferers throughout the world, just like us. We're not alone. 2020 is not something that has caught God off guard. There are brothers and sisters all around us who are suffering for the same faith, the gospel of Jesus. He's a God who makes us us. The fourth is this. He's a God who exposes himself through promise. Look at verse 10. He has promised to do all of these things, This is not on me. It's not on you. It's on him. He has promised to restore us, to confirm us, make us able, to strengthen us, to actually, or literally, prop us up, and to establish us, to stabilize us on his own foundation. This is God exposing himself to us. You can complain that these things aren't being done to the degree that you'd like them to be done, but he is a God who exposes himself through promise. Will he really do it? He's promised. And the fifth is this. He is a God who tells us how to live in this world. We may not like how he tells us to live. We may not like that he tells us to be humble because humility is what defeats anxiety. And we might not like that he says a faith in the gospel is that which defeats being eaten up by the world. It's true. We may not like these things, humility and faith in the gospel, but these are the means by which God says we are to live in this world. These are the means by which God provides for us. Is there anything to be thankful for in 2020? He's a God who cares for us. He's a God who operates according to a plan. He's a God who makes us us. He's a God who exposes himself through promise. And he is a God who tells us how to make it in this present age. This is our God. Let's not get lost in what the world tells us about 2020. It's not unprecedented. It's not unprecedented. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, you know how to care for us. You are caring for us. We ask that you would forgive us for thinking that there is something so new that is happening that you are off balance. We are off balance. Heavenly Father, would you remind us this season of the goodness of your character? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.